All right, so I think we've given two or three minutes extra time to anyone who might be finding their way in, but it's best to begin perhaps. So uh, before we start, um, I want to say that I hope that we all have, you have a, an opportunity to ask questions uh, after my session. We're lucky that there's lunch after us, so we wouldn't be bothered in the same way the way I bothered these guys before us. Um, and I do have a microphone that I intend to pass around when we go into the question period, so that uh, you guys can all take your turn and, and just ask away. But the main point is that it's not really the, the answers that I'm trying to supply here for you today, uh, but the questions. One of my favorite proverbs is a Chinese proverb, and it goes like this. Seek not to know the answers, but to understand the questions. And so, when we are confronted with an issue, one of the best things that we can start with is ask ourselves, what is the question that I should be asking? Because the type and quality of the question we begin with will ultimately determine, hi Darren, the type and quality of the answer we're going to get. And so today I will speak to you about the importance of asking questions. There are many questions that I will bring to your attention today, but perhaps the most important one that we will have to face both as, a civil, both as a civilization and as individuals is one of the oldest questions that has been around for thousands of years. And we still have failed to provide an answer that satisfies at least the majority of us. And the question is, what is human? And so this presentation will not be about podcasting. Last year, my presentation was about the 15 most fundamental tips that I could give you um, for starting and eventually becoming a successful podcaster. I shared how I passed over half a million views and got for 10 weeks in NASA at their bill, uh, NASA's Ames campus in Mountain View in California, and how I got to meet amazing people in person such as Ray Kurzweil, Peter Diamandis, astronaut Dan Barry, the people who send up the Mars rovers. And I got to visit amazing cutting-edge technological companies such as Google, Facebook, and Tesla, among many, many others. This year, I could have told you how my Singularity one-on-one -on -one podcast passed one million downloads. But the principles that I use and I continue to use to this day are the same. So going from half a million in three years and then doubling in 12 months to one million required nothing more than some momentum that I have gathered before and the application of the very same fundamentals. So let me say this again. This presentation will not be about podcasting. If you do want to find my tips and hear my personal podcasting story, you can go to singularityweblog.com and simply search for PodCamp Toronto. Then you will find the video, the audio, and the text of last year's presentation. It's all there. Also, as you can see, my friend Josh from joshgloverphotography.com is recording today's session. So you don't need to take any notes. 
but just sit down and relax. Give me a week or two, and I promise I would have the video, the audio, and the full text with hyperlinks online so that you can go and use it as a reference anytime you'd like. Finally, feel free to also come up with questions because I will leave time, or I hope I will leave time for a brief Q&A in the end. Because you see, I believe that asking good questions is actually one of the most important and most fundamental skills that any intelligent being can acquire. And so while I did say that this will not be about podcasting, let me give you a couple of tips on the questions you should be asking when reading session descriptions at PodCamp Toronto. And I promise that will get me in a whole lot of trouble in just a second. So question one that you should be asking. How qualified is the person holding the session? You see, PodCamp Toronto is a fantastic open unconference. This is both a good and a bad thing. It is good because given its low barrier to entry, anyone can take the stand and hold a session. So I don't care who you are, what you do, or what your topic is. You are given an amazing opportunity to contribute to the public discourse on a topic of your choice. The bad thing is, though, that again, given its low barrier to entry, anyone can hold a session. And thus, in the past years, the quality of those sessions has varied widely, from amazingly mind-blowing professional sessions to dismal, like absolutely horrible, as I'm sure there are a few of them running right now. <laughs> so this year, we had a new social media voting system implemented. And while it's not perfect, it was a great step forward to provide what's called social proof, authority. And so I expect that this will be actually the very best PodCamp Toronto yet. Still, it helps to ask yourself again, how qualified is the person holding the session? So my tip is this. If you have someone who will be talking about blogging, go and check out their blog. So from the get-go, unless your name is Seth Godin, and you see a blog hosted on a wholesale domain platform such as Blogger, TypePad, or WordPress.com, then that person likely has no idea about blogging. Other signs confirming that conclusions include, but are not limited to, low or no social sharing, low or no comments, lack of unique branding and design. Question number two, what is the metrics and how accurate it is in measuring their expertise. If the person is talking about YouTube and or video production, go check out their channel and look at their videos. If you see only low quality videos, no traffic, no comments and so on, I would recommend you're better off skipping that session. If the person claims to be a social media guru, as a few of my colleagues do, Go look at their social media account on their PodCamp Toronto session. If there is no or only one their own tweet, most likely they're not social media experts. So don't bother going. Last year, someone was giving tips about blogging, and they said that they had 30,000 hits for the previous past years. My tip here is to be skeptical, ask questions, and dig deeper. So let's take this example. First of all, what is a hit? In most cases, a hit is either a page view or a visit. So I go load up my own blog on my own computer 
and this will give me one hit. If you click the refresh button, this will give me usually two hits, and so on. Thus, just one among several better ways to estimate traffic will be, for example, how many unique visitors per month your blog gets, rather than mere hits. This way, you get a more accurate estimate of the audience size and the blogger's authority. So let's do the math together. With the example I just gave, with the person who was boasting they had 30,000 hits in five years. 30,000 divided by five years, each year has 365 days, would give you roughly less than 17, quote, hits per day. I already explained what a hit is, so you would see, I hope, that it's not a big deal. That one can get those 17 hits per day just with oneself and a couple of friends. So again, if I were you, I would claim, don't waste your time learning from such, quote, popular bloggers. And so, to recap, today's tip, for today's tip for podcasting, as well as most other things in life, is be skeptical, ask questions, measure, and dig deeper. Okay, let's move on to the main question here today. Peering into our future's black hole, artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and the end of humanity. In my session description, I promise to share my answers to five fundamental questions. So let's go. Number one, what are the most Im important technological trends today? Since we can spend the whole day discussing just this topic, and we only have 45 minutes, and I'm hoping to get to questions two, three, and four, and five, I would start by giving you what I believe is by far the very best, the very most important uh, trend, and that's called exponential growth. This is also the easiest trend and the hardest at the same time. It is easy because unless you have been living in a cave somewhere for the last 50 years, you already know that the world is changing faster than ever before. Not only that, but the change that we can clearly see ourselves, I believe, is speeding up and accelerating in its own right. I believe this is more or less obvious and easy to see for everyone here. But exponential growth is very hard to grasp because our brains have evolved to make linear rather than exponential projections. And so, to help us grasp it better, let me use an ancient Indian chess legend as an example. The legend calls that the tradition of serving pai pao sam, which is, I'm told, rice pudding, which is being served in Hindu temples, originates after a game of chess between an ancient Indian king and Lord Krishna himself. So the king was a big chess enthusiast and had the habit of challenging wise visitors to a game of chess. One day a traveling guru was, challenge was challenged by the king and to motivate him, the king promised him any reward that the sage could ask for if the king gets defeated. Now the guru asked for a single grain of rice in the following manner. One grain of rice placed into the first, on the first square of the chessboard and then doubled every square afterwards. So one, two, four, and so on. And the king accepted. They played the game and the king, of course, lost. So having lost the game, the king, being a man of his word, ordered a bag of rice to be brought to the chessboard. 
Then he started placing rice grains according to the arrangement. One rice grain on the first, two on the second, four on the third, eight on the next one, 16, 32, 64, 128, 512, 1024, and so on. And quickly realized that he couldn't pay his debt. Because following the exponential growth of that rice payment, on the 20th square, the king would have had to put 1 million grains of rice. On the 40th square, the king would have had to put 1 billion grains of rice. And finally, on the 64th square, the king would have had to put 18 billion trillion grains of rice, which is equal to about 210 billion tons of rice, and is allegedly sufficient to cover the whole territory of India with a meter-thick layer of rice. At 10 grains of rice per square inch, the above amount requires rice fields covering twice the surface area of the earth, oceans included. So it was at this point that the Lord Krishna revealed himself, his true identity to the king, and told him that he doesn't have to pay his debt immediately, but he can try to do so over time. And ever since that day, when you go to a Hindu temple, you bring rice to try and pay that debt that's been sitting there for thousands of years. Now I hope you agree with me that this is an interesting and powerful story that helps us understand exponentials. But some of you may point out that it is a myth, it's a legend, it's not real. Well, let us look at the best known example of exponential growth from the world of technology today, and that's Moore's Law. Moore's Law is named after Gordon Moore, the co-founder and former chairman of the Intel Corporation. It was published in 1965 and simply put, it states that the number of transistors that can be placed on an integrated circuit for the same price will double every 18 to 24 months. And we already know that, right? We know that computers are obsolete the moment you buy them and that the next computer will be at least twice faster for the same price. But today, everything is a computer your phone, your tablet, your camera, your car, even your toothbrush. And so we all have come to expect that the next generation of almost any product we buy is at least twice better than the previous generation. Thus, in a universe going digital where everything becomes information, we're increasingly able to manipulate and mold that information. And as far as the digital universe is concerned, we are gods. We can do whatever we want, but we have to remember that what used to be material is now digital. Take books and music records. They used to be material objects, but now they have dematerialized and have gone digital. The thing is that this is only the beginning. Everything is becoming information today, including people, including you and me. Take biology. Biology used to be a analog. But with the decoding of the human genome, it is quickly going digital, and now we can decipher and even 3D print biological tissues, even organs by design. And this is only the very beginning, as I said. We are well on the way of designing life on the computer screen and then pressing the print button to bring it to life. And so as Stuart Brand says, we have become gods and we might as well get used to it. We humans are biological creatures. We are made of atoms. 
So more powerful computers allow us to learn and manipulate smaller and smaller particles in even more precise ways. Thus, there will be a day when we can create new bodies and even new brains. But I will talk about that a little later. Other major fields benefiting immensely from exponential growth include, but are not limited to, robotics and artificial intelligence, genetic engineering and synthetic biology, nanotechnology and 3D printing. And so, all of the above has often been described by futurists such as Ray Kurzweil and Werner Vinge, who believe that exponential growth trends such as Moore's law will eventually lead to a phenomenon that they have called the technological singularity. So let me address the question, the second question. What is the technological singularity? The term singularity has many meanings. In simple language, it means the state of being singular, distinct, peculiar, uncommon, or unusual. In mathematics, it means a problem with undefined answer. For example, 5 divided by 0. In physics, a singularity is a black hole, a place where the fabric of time and space is ruptured and the laws of the universe don't seem to hold true anymore. And so we borrow this metaphor from physics to represent the accelerating changes that we can observe today, right now, in technology. And thus, if I'm to put the technological singularity in just two words, I would say that it is intelligence explosion. But there are numerous schools of thoughts on the definition with subtle but important differences. So I already said it's intelligent explosion, but it's a lot more than that. So now that you've heard the short version, let me throw at you a bunch of quotes to make things more interesting. The first one comes from John von Neumann, who was instrumental in the development of the atomic bomb and then the hydrogen bomb. One of the smartest people of the 20th century, genius in a number of fields. He said, the ever-accelerating progress of technology gives the appearance of approaching some essential singularity in the history of the race beyond which human affairs as we know them could not continue. Here's the original definition by a colleague of John von Neumann's British mathematician I.J. Good. Let an ultra-intelligent machine be defined as a machine that can far surpass all the intellectual activities of any man, however clever. Since the design of machines is one of these intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design even better machines. There would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion, and the intelligence of men would be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that men need ever make. Another quote coming from a now classic NASA paper by Werner Vinge. Within 30 years, we will have the technological means to create superhuman intelligence. He wrote that in 1993, and he still stands by his timeline today. Shortly after, the human era will be ended. I think it's fair to call this event a singularity. It's a point where our models must be discarded and a new reality rules. As we move closer and closer to this point, it will loom vaster and vaster over human affairs till the notion becomes a commonplace. Yet, when it finally happens, it may still be a great surprise and a greater unknown. A future period 
during which the pace of technological change will be so rapid, its impact so deep, that human life will be irreversibly transformed. Although neither utopian nor dystopian, nor dystopian, this epoch will transform the concepts that we rely on to give meaning to our lives, from our business models to the cycle of human life, including death itself. This is Ray Kurzweil's definition. Kevin Kelly, founder, co-founder of Wired magazine, said, Singularity is the point at which all the change in the past million years will be superseded by the change in the next five minutes. A blog reader of mine sent me this uh, definition of his that I like very much. The technological singularity is when our creations surpass us in our understanding of them versus their understanding of us, rendering us obsolete in the process. So the questions that I would ask here, that I'm asking here are, what happens to us when we stop being the smartest entities on the planet? What happens when your toothbrush is smarter, not only than you and me, but it's smarter than all of us, all of humanity put together? And so while we're pondering this issue, let's move on to question number three. What is transhumanism? Transhumanism is both misunderstood and feared. Francis Fukuyama famously called it the most dangerous idea. Put simply, transhumanism is the belief that technology can allow us to improve, enhance, and overcome the limits of our biology. More specifically, transhumanists believe that by merging man and machine via biotech, molecular nanotech, and artificial intelligence, one day, science will yield humans that have increased cognitive capabilities, are physically stronger, emotionally more stable, and have indefinite lifespans. This path, they say, will eventually lead to a post-human, intelligent, augmented beings, far superior to men, a near embodiment of God. Some of the main issues here are can humanity continue to survive and prosper by embracing technology? Or will technology eventually bring forth the end of the human race altogether? Will humanity get polarized into neo-Luddite technophobes and transhumanist technophiles? Does that mean that widespread global conflict may be impossible to avoid? Who will be the dominant species? And finally, the question that I start with, what is the essence of being human? What is human? So let's move on to the fourth question. Can science make us immortal? Let me ask you another one. What is death? The definition of death may not be so simple and obvious as you may think. For example, there's a bunch of European Union countries which have very different definitions of death. So it, apparently, the Swiss and the Italians are not dead at the same time in the same state, it seems. And so in a way, death is just another way of somebody, usually a doctor, saying, I can't do anything else for her. But what we can or can't do has changed over time. And thus, the definition of death has changed and is continuing to change as we speak. It used to be the case that death was declared when one stopped breathing on their own. 
But today we have respirators that can keep us alive even if we are unable to do that. It used to be the case that death was declared when one stopped having a pulse, that is perceivable heart rate. But today we routinely stop heart beating during surgery. Just yesterday uh, there was a live-tweeted bypass surgery and they were taking pictures as they sh shut down the heartbeat of the patient. So, one of the latest ways of measuring and or defining death is actually, now the latest thing is measuring brain activity. And as our knowledge and technology improve, in time, this is also likely to change. And so, can science make us immortal? Let me start addressing this issue by saying that science has made substantial progress with respect to aging and life expectancy. A brief historical survey of longevity throughout the ages will read something like this. During the Cro-Magnon era, life expectancy was 18 years. So basically in biology, and we were very much tight with biology at that period of our evolution, it's all about procreation. As soon as you procreate, next generation, you're ready to die. And people didn't, on average, make it over 18 years of age. In ancient Egypt, average life expectancy was about 25 years. In ancient Greece, in the time of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, average life expectancy was 28 years. In 1400 AD Europe, average life expectancy was 30 years. So from the Cro-Magnon era, let's say 30 or 50,000 years ago, until let's say 1400 AD Europe, 50,000 years, we've managed to double life expectancy from about 18 to about, let's say, 30, almost double. But then, in 1800 Europe and USA, life expectancy went to 37. In 1900 USA, average life expectancy was 48. And so, when around 1900, Social Security was introduced at 65 in the United States, one of the reasons was because introducing it wouldn't cost much money to the Treasury. And why? The reason was simple. Most people never actually made it to 65. They were dead way before that. The problem is that today, though, we are victims of our own success because almost everybody makes it over 65 today. In 2002, the, in the United States, the average life expectancy was 78. A child born today, anywhere in the world, is expected to live over 90 years. And right now, every one year, our life expectancy improves by three months. So what happens is this. This year, let's say, my life expectancy is, let's say, for brevity's sake, 90 years. Next year, my life expectancy will be 90 years and 3 months. The following year, it will be 90 years and 6 months, etc., etc. And so, that process itself is also accelerating. And there will be a point when every year, as we age, we will be able to basically hold time, stop the biological clocks, and enhanced life expectancy by another year. This is what Dr. Aubrey de Grey calls longevity escape velocity. At that moment, we would start having indefinite lifespans. 
So let's go to question number five. I'm rushing a little bit here so that I hope that I have managed to stir your imagination and we can jump into the discussion. Why humanity is doomed to go the way of the dinosaurs? We're often told that humanity is the pinnacle of evolution, but it is not hard to see that we are a beta product. We have numerous problems and we are far from perfect. In fact, what has allowed us to survive and prosper is our intelligence, which has given birth to our technology. Strip away all of our technology and the vast majority of us will not survive. Moreover, evolution never stops. So there was a time when dinosaurs ruled the earth, but it is always bound to happen. Things change. And what previously was a niche organism, namely mammals, took over and flourished, flourished while dinosaurs went extinct. Well, evolution is also accelerating. It took perhaps 10 billion years to form, to form the galaxies in our planet. It took another couple billion years before we had the first simple single cell life forms. Then it took hundreds of millions of years to get plants and eventually dinosaurs. Hominoids have been around for perhaps something like six or seven million years. And then Homo sapiens have been around for about 50, maybe two, two, three hundred thousand years. And so everything is accelerating, but also everything is changing. And today the fastest pace of evolution is one we can observe in technology. Thus technology is supplanting biological evolution and technological creatures are likely to replace biological ones, just like mammals replaced dinosaurs. In fact, this has already happened because as I pointed before, our civilization is a technological one and it cannot survive without its technology. And so I hope that by now you would see that in the long run it is inevitable that humanity as we know it is doomed to go the way of the dinosaur. As we saw, evolution doesn't stop. And despite of what we are being told, we are not unique in any way. And just like all species before us, Homo sapiens will eventually go extinct. However, this does not have to be necessarily bad news. For as long as humanity evolves and there is continuity between what we are today and what we have to become to survive and prosper, there is hope. In fact, this, as Ray Kurzweil claims, is the very essence of what makes us human, our ability to evolve and transcend. And so this is the choice, evolve and transcend our biological limitations or go extinct. The choice is in turn derived from one of the most fundamental questions that we still have to confront and that I started with today. What is human? We have to find the answer to this question, both collectively as a civilization and personally as individuals. This session was not meant to provide definitive answers, but rather to set the stage and ask some questions in an attempt to generate discussion, to provoke thought and stir your imagination. My goal here was to spark a conversation about the impact of technology, exponential growth and artificial intelligence. My name is Nick, or Nicola. My blog is singularityweblog.com. 
and my blogging alias is Socrates, the man with the questions. Today I have tried to share with you my journey to discover who I am as a being, who we are as a species, and most of all, how does technology change the meaning of both the above questions and answers. And so now I would like to invite you to join me in this journey and start asking your own questions. Let us open the Q&A session. Uh, I'm always, this is a question I always ask people is, and I missed the beginning of your presentation, so my apologies. Is there any particular um, literature or stories, I'm, I'm thinking sci perhaps it would be science fiction, but it could be other forms of literature that have particularly informed you um, as you've been reflecting on what all, all this, this means. And um, I wondered if you're familiar with one of my favorite short stories from when I was in high school about a million years ago called The Machine Stops. And it's uh, set in the future and it's about humanity evolving to be a bunch of blobs in front of TV screens. And one day the machine just breaks down. I can't remember the author, but I bet you other people here had to do it in high school uh, in the 70s. But uh, what could you tell us, is there something that particularly sort of got you to your aha moment? Well, my personal aha moment was uh, <clears throat> I was doing a, a master's degree thesis at York University. And I'm a political scientist and a philosopher. So my area was the most depressing area. My field of expertise was war or armed conflict. And I, I was looking for a sort of a cool, new, cutting edge topic to write my thesis on. And what I came up with was artificial intelligence in times of war. And that was 2006 or so, where it was only the very beginning of the first drone strikes in places like first Yemen, then Afghanistan and Iraq. And what I argued there was that what we may be witnessing is not necessarily the clash of two civilizations, as Samuel Huntington put it or two ideologies, but the very first time in history of this world when increasingly intelligent self-autonomous machines are increasingly taken automated decisions as to whether a human being would live or die. In the process of my research for that, I read a book written by Ray Kurzweil called The Singularity is Near, and that book totally blew my mind. Like, it absolutely blew my mind. Um, I can quote a couple of other books that have been fundamental. Of course, Werner Vinge's uh, classic 1993 NASA paper is absolutely a must read. Um, on the science fiction end of things, uh, uh, I, I'm particularly a fan of Charlie Strauss and his book called Accelerando. It's a fantastic singularity story. Um, as far as the, the particular story that you mentioned, I have not read it, but the uh, the sort of the plot is is very similar. Cory Doctorow has a similar story about the future in a world where basically people are changing bodies every time they catch a cold, because it's easier to upload into a perfectly new, healthy, and clean body rather than fight a cold, and it's much more pleasant, right? So, so I I know uh, I I've heard of, of of that kind of plot before. Um, as per what books I would recommend, I would say uh, feel free to get my uh, business card. I have a whole collection of books that I have recommended uh, on singularitysymposium.com and my blog singularityweblog.com when I've done many reviews. 
There's about maybe 750 articles by now, and I've done about 140 interviews with pretty much most people that you can think of in the world. Um, so, um, yeah, the, there's a gold mine of information there. I, I even forget because after. I looked it up, and it's actually 1909 by Ian Forster. So, so, so I, I guess that, that you know it's interesting to me that you're coming from political science. Uh, there may be people here who are from STEM, which is you know science, and, and I come from a science background. So these are these are topics that are just there for for decades and over a century in literature, in the popular media. Um, so it's interesting to me that that you're maybe coming, and, and lots of scientists read sci-fi. Yes, uh, absolutely. So yeah, so I just, I just wondered. Anyway, that was really old. Like, that's over 100 years old. Yeah, it, it's amazing. So, for example, the first references that I could find of, of, of people considering machines taking over the world, I could track to 1847. And people extrapolated from basically the first manually cranked calculators how one day machines can be so good and be able to do everything on their own so that we become obsolete. And then Samuel Butler um, famously wrote uh, a book called Erichhorn, uh, where he basically said that if we're not careful, we're going to be replaced by the machines. That book came out, I think, in the 1880s. Um, and he basically said that we should be smart and go ahead and destroy every technology that came after the Industrial Revolution. That's the only way that we can survive. Otherwise, inevitably, in his opinion, we would be replaced and go obsolete. That same idea was picked up by Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, right? Almost 100 years after Samuel Butler. Well, not 100, but let's say 70, 70 years or so, right? And if you read the, the Unabomber manifesto and read some of the things that he's talking about there, uh, it could be a very informative text about the world we are living in today. Now, of course, Ted was, you know, a maniacal terrorist and killed innocent people, but at the same time, he was a brilliant math prof, one of the, the youngest ever hires. Uh, I can't remember if it was Berkeley or Stanford. Um, and so there's a long history of, uh, of, of people thinking and, and sort of theorizing about the issues. Me, personally, I come more from the perspective of a philosopher. Uh, my foundation was sort of in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, particularly. So I have a very strong uh, emphasis on ethics. You know, the way we are today, science there's no more science fiction. It's only science in the process of being developed. There's no science fiction. I mean, the science fiction of the past is reality today. So, or most of it anyway. So. To me, those technical issues are engineering issues. They're small issues. The bigger issues are always the philosophical ones, the ethical ones. So what is one of the biggest questions that I can always think of. Okay, you can make people live forever. So what? What are the implications? What are the ethics of that? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? How would we know? What are the right questions to ask to frame this, right? So. The technical issues are important, but they're engineering problems. And we have brilliant engineers who have shown amazing history to solve those problems in time. And, and I'm absolutely sure that in time, all of those issues will be solved. OK. Next one. Um, Go ahead. Just to add to that question of influential media, have you had a chance to see the new RoboCop movie? 
I've seen the old one. I haven't had the chance to see the new one, but uh, I, I had a bunch of people tell me it's pretty darn good. And uh, it's not uh, anything unrealistic right now. I mean, there's I can name you half a dozen and maybe two dozen programs that are already developing what used to be science fiction now into reality. So, uh, I mean, if you see the war vets coming from Iraq and Afghanistan, and if you see their you know, artificial intelligence powered legs and knees and things like that, hands, and you know, they even say pimp my gimp and they're like boasting about all the new cool functions that their new stuff can do that their original hands could not do. Uh, on my podcast, I interviewed a guy called Nigel Auckland. He has right now probably one of the most advanced hands in the world. It's called the Bibionic 2 hand. And uh, he said, I would personally prefer to have my old hand back, but I can't. But I have absolutely no doubt that in the future people would choose to replace their real hands with, you know, artificial ones, simply because the evolution of the technologies creating the artificial ones advances so fast and they're getting so much better all the time that pretty soon what we can engineer will be infinitely better than what nature has given us. And then people would start making that choice and we would get to the point, we are in the Olympics now, so there will be a point soon when um, the, the Paralympics will be much more interesting events than the regular Olympics because that's where the real records will be broken. And, and those guys will be blowing up every single record set by a so-called able-bodied athlete. They're not forbidden. You're referring to Oscar Pistorius, the so-called Blade Runner. Um, there's a lot of scientific debate whether his carbon fiber cheetah legs give him advantage or not. My understanding from reading up on it is that not yet, but soon we will. Soon we will. Um, I just wanted to try some material. Do you know why robots never go hungry? Because right next to the motherboard, Every robot has a smorgasbord. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Okay, would you mind passing the microphone so that others can join? Okay. In predicting the future by extrapolating exponential trends, which you did a lot of today, you have to admit, law, etc. Um, shouldn't you have considered limits to growth, like uh, quantum uncertainty, speed of light, length of uh, DNA telomeres, yes. uh, number of particles in the universe? The Heisenberg principle of uncertainty, et which... Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you didn't mention any of those things, yeah. and you're saying this will happen. Look, I, I'm not saying this will happen. I'm saying people say that it will happen, and there's lots of data backing up those claims. You be the judge whether it will happen and what if anything, you should do about it. What I can tell you, though, is that those limits of growth has been, have been predicted since the book Limits of Growth was published in the 1970s. It was a different, it's the, limited limit. It's the same principle. And the death of Moore's Law has been predicted again for the, since the very moment in 1965 when Gordon Moore published it. And as you can see, 
we're still doubling. We are still accelerating and speeding. And by the way, today it doesn't take 18 to 24 months. It takes something like 13 months. So not only that it has continued to hold through, but it's in turn accelerating in, in its own right. But I can use the past to predict the future too by you know, reporting that uh, in 10 years there will be computer intelligence has been a prediction for the last 50 years. Sure, you know, when, look, there's an ancient Greek legend about Icarus and Daedalus, right? It's maybe, I don't know, four, five thousand, six thousand years old, right? And it's about hubris and about, you know, not doing things that God didn't endow you to do. And it's about the dream of flight. And it basically, the moral of the story is you can't fly and you never will fly, right? And that was true for what? Four, five, six thousand years since that myth or legend came to be. And yet today, I bet you most of us and probably all of us have flown here, right? Not in the same way with wax and, you know, bird feathers, but in a much more efficient ways and probably numerous times. And it's, it's, it's accessible to most of us here, at least in Canada, right? So the fact that something has been false for 50 years or has, didn't come to be is not a logical argument to claim that it's not going to ever come to be. Yeah, go ahead. Nick, thank you. For thank you, too. Yep. Yeah. around you uh, doubles every 18 months. Uh, and the question revolves around the uh, life expectancy and increasing life expectancy, I believe said like three months every year. Yeah. Um, currently being at 1998. Sorry? The current life expectancy was 90. It's a projection, but I've seen a number of studies that claim that a child born today is expected to live at least 93. 93. Thanks, and sir. and the backwards uh, statistics is that it, in 2002, last time I looked at the numbers, was about 78 in North America. Okay. So in, in, in this context where, let's say, everything else is uh, growing logarithmically, uh, the three months every year seems to be uh, kind of a sequential progression, right? So but let's say by the time we get to a life expectancy of 150, um, 175, three months almost doesn't count anymore from year to year. And so everything else grows like this, whereas life expectancy would, looks like it will top somewhere. Why? That's I my question. That's my question is how do you think about... Yeah, but why, why would you think that it would top? Give me like what is the sort of the data that you use to extrapolate that statement? Why? I just don't know. I mean, I gave, you, I gave you probably, what, 30,000 years worth of data about how life has doubled, tripled. Since the time of the Cro-Magnon, we know that we have quadrupled life expectancy. It was 18 then, now it's 90. That was mostly due to uh, infant mortality rates, right? Like, child mortality, like mortality for children under the age of five, adjusting for that, like taking out of the data set, uh, people live into the 60s. Uh, yeah, take for example ancient Athens. It was the pinnacle of evolution of its time, supposedly, right? If you got a small infection, you're dead. If you get the plague, 50% of the population is dead, right? If you get a cold and you get pneumonia, you're dead. 
if you get hit by a rusty nail, you're dead or you lose your limb and then you're dead, right? Because then most of the time when you get amputation, there, there were almost infinite numbers of ways which today you can treat with over-the-counter meditation that you'd be dead. So yes, Socrates lived, lived until he was 72 and he drank the poison to die, right? But most of his compatriots never made it to that age. That would be my reply personally. I'll try to rephrase then my question. Yeah, uh, sure. So rather from a sequential um, model, three months, three months, do you see the possibility of changing to a logarithmic, logarithmical model? Um, yes, well, you know, that was not always the case that we had three months, right? As I said, that three months is accelerating in its own right. But it happens, it's not gradual, it happens in sort of pulses, right? When we come up with a new breakthrough in this and that discipline, eventually what happens is you shift the curve, right? The singularity, if you look at the, the curve, is not a curve, it's like a number of S lines which shift. So it goes like this, it tapers off, but then there's a new curve. We have a breakthrough in, I don't know, computing, in genetics, in 3D bioprinting, and therefore instead of, you know, making very crude bypasses in which, you know, we take a vein from your thigh and you basically hack and short circuit your heart, right? Instead, what we do is we bioprint a brand new heart for you, which is better than the one you've had. It's, and it's perfect because it has your own stem cells. And once you have something like this, a breakthrough of this kind, then you would shift the curve very substantially. On my show, I've, as I said, I've interviewed 140 people. Let me just give you one example. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed the gentleman called Gabor Forgach, very interesting guy, uh, former theoretical physicist. Now he he's the founder of two companies. One is called Organovo, and the other is called Modern Meadow. Organovo designs and bioprints with a patented uh, invention of his human tissues, and the idea is that soon they'll be able to do so for who, not soon, but let's say within 10 years, they'll be able to do whole organs. Modern Meadow has two short to medium term goals, to produce suffering-free, perfect, cattle-free leather to begin with. So instead of stripping off the leather of the backs of animals, you grow it or you 3D bioprint it, you engineer it. And the other thing is meat, right? I mean, and that's only one of many projects. Dr. Mark Post from the Netherlands, recently funded by Sergey Brin, um, had this public tasting of the first lab-grown hamburger, meat. Now, obviously, making a liver or a heart is a lot more complicating, complicated than, you know, engineering a, a hamburger patty. But still, it's a, it's a process of development. You know, science starts with small nuggets until it goes from here to Mars and outside of the solar system. So every beginning starts small and with a single step. And then when you look back, like when I look back and I think how I started um, blogging and podcasting, I was absolutely horrendous, like the first. And even now when I look at my blog, I'm like, oh my God, it's so bad. I, I need to change 10 million things and it sucks in so many ways. Having said that, if you look where I am today with something like maybe 50,000 unique visitors per month, and something like over a million uh, downloads between YouTube and iTunes, 
it's a it's a considerable journey right but it started with a crappy website <coughs> that I had no idea how to run and with only a couple of people coming for the first maybe a year or six months and and a couple of listeners to my blog and and now I have thousands and some of them are incredible scientists across the world awesome thank you thank you too let's let's pass the microphone if you don't mind yeah just pass it down please uh, thank you for your talk. That was really informative and mind-blowing, so that was pretty cool. Um, thank you. That was uh, the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess my question is, uh, sort of, you've presented a lot of ideas and uh, about the future and how uh, we're all moving, uh, I guess, faster. Um, uh, how do you think, uh, I guess, I don't know if you could speculate on this, but how do you think economics uh, goes along with that and access to um, a lot of these, these technologies? Because... Uh, for, I mean, they're, they, they're expensive, I think. Um, so how do you think access goes along with that? And do you think that will play into? That's a very important question, especially since I'm somebody who cares a lot about ethics and is a former political science student. But the, the classic answer to that is, is very simple, actually. If you look at it historically, take cell phones, for example. Amazing technology. 20 years ago, I actually was hoping Joseph would make it here, but he didn't. He had a, one of my friends, Joseph, he had like a, one of those first cell phones that was like 20 or $30,000 that costed thousands of dollars to operate per month. And that was like a suitcase <laughs> and actually, quite honestly, didn't work very well most of the time. Right. Look where we are today. Cell, cell phones are nearly free. Right. Everybody has a cell phone. If you go to Africa, everybody has a cell phone. Right. So that's how all technologies are. They start very expensive and very rare, and they suck. They usually don't work very well. The better they get, the cheaper they get, the, the higher access to the public they do. So yeah, when you start talking about life extension technology and stuff, of course, people in California, in Hollywood, the super rich would be the first ones to get their hands on it. And there will be some very public disasters, right? And a lot of people would get turned off. And eventually, just like any science, step by step, we'll get it right. You know, uh, just like take cars, for example, right? The first cars we came up with, they sucked, right? Any horse was better than the first cars, right? Look at where cars are today. And most people have cars, right? At least in Canada. So. And the other thing about the car, the car example is, is a, a thing often, an example often given by Dr. Aubrey de Grey, who is actually at the forefront of that sort of campaign for healthy longevity. So, um, take Ford Model T, right? The car was designed to last no longer than 10 years, perhaps. We still have collectors who drive those cars today, if you can believe that. And there's even rallies where people from across North America get together with their 100-year-old cars and they race against each other, believe it or not, or something. I don't know. Anyway, how is that possible if the car was designed to last 10 years? Well, it's possible because we know everything there is to know about internal combustion engines. We know all the parts that the car is made of. We know how they work. We know how they're put together. And we know how to make them and replace them, right? The human body is not different, in my view. I don't know where you stand religiously, but I'm a hardcore materialist. Uh, we are made of atoms, 
we are physical beings. If the physical is gone, there's no evidence that there's anything else left there afterwards. We follow, our bodies follow the laws of the universe. So the better we get at learning and knowing what those laws are, and the better we get at manipulating those particles, the better we'll get at fixing stuff that goes wrong with us. And, you know, it's a much more complicated issue to fix this body than to fix a Ford Model T. But, you know, it's the same principle, it just takes longer time. We send things to Mars nowadays, eventually we'll be able to do this too. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So, um, Grab the microphone, please. tends to be very me-centered on human beings, and if there's an extended life uh, exponentially, uh, who is working on um, the ideas of sustainability in terms of the planet, in terms of populations? So who are the leaders looking at those uh, or developing solutions in that world? I'd like to know the names of them, because I'd be interested in, in looking to see what they have to say. <laughs> so, we live in a world full of problems, right? We live in a world full of, full of problems. And we're facing many of them, and, and, and many of those problems are technological. In other words, it was technology that got us into many of those problems, right? So, as I said, we're victims of our own success, because if we didn't uh, figure out how to make better fertilizer, and if we didn't have the agrarian revolution, we wouldn't have 7 billion people today and growing, right? Clearly, that's why I asked the question. <laughs> but the answer is not less technology. The answer is not less technology. So, first of all, uh, if you shut down all technology today, people have made arguments that perhaps if we go to the sort of hunter-gatherer society, our planet is able to sustain two or 300 million people. So we're talking giga-death here, death at large scale. So the answer to our problems is not less technology, it's just more and smarter technology. So if you're asking who are the people, I would say it's the same people, it's the technologists, it's the people at the cutting edge, it's the people such as Google, it's the people such as inventor like Dean Kamen, it's the people uh, from, for example, Bibionic who invented that amazing hand that Nigel Auckland and others uh, it's those innovators, it's those people who come up with that stuff, they're pushing the ball forward. They're, they're, they're making the progress and eventually, uh, you know, it's not a guarantee, but that's the only hope I see that we've got of resolving uh, our problems. And, of course, it's not, technology in its own right is not sufficient by itself to fix the problems. We need other things like political will, we need ethics. That's why my show is all about ethics and technology is just sort of the context. Right. So, so on your show, have you uh, been interviewing people who are looking at it from that perspective? I've interviewed everybody from religious people, highly religious people, to scientists, to skeptics, uh, to journalists, to science fiction writers, to entrepreneurs, to any, any kind of view that I can think of. Right. So if I go there, I, I guess what I'm trying to get is an answer from you on who those people, like, specifically who those individuals might be, and, and or books or sources? Well, um, yeah, as I said, uh, look at Singularity University. That's their whole sort of modus operandi, right? The goal of going to Singularity University, for example, <laughs> is, as they modestly put it, how do we make a positive change in the life of a billion people within 10 years? 
So that's the whole issue they're dealing with, right? So the whole goal is to go there and to make the, board, the world a better place, to figure out a way that scales, that employs and utilizes those trends of exponential growth and that we can change the world and shift it into a direction better for everybody. That's the whole point of Singularity University. So perhaps you should check there and look at faculty, look at my interviews with them, my experience there, and so on. Let's pass the... Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Lunch, lunch has started, so I'm, I'm willing to, fend, to take as many questions as you guys want, but if you guys, whoever wants to go for lunch, feel free to do so. I'll continue taking questions. Go ahead. Um, just curious whether you've seen the Spike Jonze film, Her, Her. Uh, and what's your take on yeah, that? Yeah, I love that movie. Uh, however, real life is not a movie. So that movie was, I think, the best singularitarian or singularity movie that I've seen so far, rather than, you know, the stupid Terminator nonsense. But it's, a happy, it's, in, it's probably one of the best case scenarios in that movie that we end with. So it's more utopian. And real life, no, I'm not saying it's utopian. I'm, I'm just saying it doesn't necessarily have to be such nice uh, ending. I hope it is, because uh, the AIs in that movie in the end were very nice to us, and they just decided to leave, to leave us alone, right? But, and I hope, uh, well, it's obviously spoilers here, but, but uh, rather than kill us all, right? So there's two schools of thought. I mean, there are people who think that the singularity will be the best thing that's ever happened to our, our civilization. We'll conquer death, we'll conquer scarcity, we'll take care of hunger, starvation that is uh, suffering etc right and there are people and whole organizations such as for example the previous singularity institute now it's called machine intelligence research institute miri who think it's going to be the end of the world and they have i think maybe about a million dollar budget right now doing research on how to prevent that from happening how to create what they call friendly artificial intelligence because they say that by definition as soon as they're smarter than us, as they will be probably, they don't even have to hate us necessarily like in the Terminator, but as far as they don't consider us equals, uh, you know, we don't hate ants, but we destroy ant colonies everywhere we go and we don't even pay attention. And the difference in, in intellectual capacity between us and them will be equal uh, and, and expandingly greater than us and ants, for example. Hi, um, great talk. And I have a question regarding, do we as a society have, um, like a democratic society, have ownership to information and technology and artificial intelligence? I mean, we're dealing with some of the, the conflicts today of, um, you know, uh, whether this is, uh, it should be a unified decision, but I don't know what your views are on where the trajectory should be for, for you know, when it does lengthen to that degree and when we do elevate ourselves to um, find, like, I'm gonna take genetic engineered organs, whether it's crops, where do we as a society, um, like, what do you believe in? I guess it's an open question, to be honest. I believe that overall there is hope. That's what I believe, I'm optimist. 
uh, I think we can make a difference. That I mean, that's that's why pretty much for the last five years, all that I've been doing is this, right? If I thought that there's no hope, I wouldn't be doing it. Uh, and I think that things are getting better, even though it's very hard to see when you turn on the news. And there's many reasons for that. But if there's one thing that comes with exponential change, that it's very disruptive. So the previous gatekeepers, the previous people in power, be it corporations or governments, can, you know, crumble in, in like weeks if, or months. And then you have a power vacuum and, and it's all new and, and it's, it's very hard for people. It's very disruptive. That kind of change is very disruptive. At the same time, I do think it, it also has the seeds of our sort of flourishing and prosperity afterwards. And as far as information goes, I think we live in a sort of a bonanza of, of free information that is at the tip of your, you know, fingers to find anytime you want, anywhere nowadays, just with a smartphone. You don't even need a computer anymore, right? And you can find anything about nutrition, about GMO, about the political issue. It's impossible, in my opinion, to keep secrets anymore. Yeah, there's it's impossible to hold progress, right? You have WikiLeaks, you have... Uh, I was going to mention that you can't stop exponential growth. You can't. But I've, in my theory, this is just just a thought that, you know, in the fabric of time, I think um, someone once said that it's not the strongest or the smartest that survive, but it's the people that can adapt the most. Yeah, that's that's like and almost a quote from Darwin himself. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and, and, it, and I think it's... But here's the difference. Still. He's talking about the biological evolution, right? Right. So if you are a finch in an island somewhere and you have a bigger beak, now, that may give you a certain kind of advantage to go after a certain kind of fruit, right? But the problem is that was a random feature, and then simply by natural selection, all the birds that had that beak were better fed, better able to procreate, better able to create offspring, and therefore all the birds in like such and such long period of time ended up exhibiting that feature. It was random, though. But that's the difference between technological evolution and biological evolution. Technological evolution is better by design. So we can design it from the get-go to be better. But it can. And it's faster. I don't think it can adapt. Like you're talking about... That's um, what we have been doing as a civilization. Everything is, is adaptation around us. The fact that you're wearing clothes is a way of you adapting to the Canadian a, is winter. Is it adapting to globalization? Is it adapting to the, the, the conflicts of society today like those are I'm, i mean i'm being very general maybe i am being very general but well as i said like uh, adaptate those exponential curves are very disruptive but again we have the tools today that we never had before to make positive change and it's going to take a lot of resistance a lot of struggle and there will be a high price to be paid but we can make a difference that's what i believe and yeah Sure. Why do you think that my consciousness is in is is here? Like, if everything's exponential and there's going to be quintillions of humans or quintillions of consciousnesses, why is it that I'm in the first, say, 12 billion or, or 20 billion sentient in con uh, intelligences that I know of? Do you understand the question? Show me the evidence that says that your intelligence is not here. 
well, your intelligence is here from your perspective, and my intelligence is here from my perspective, right? Assuming that brain in the vat stuff aside, right? So you, you've heard of Occam's razor, I, I, I think, right? Of course. Right. So if we don't have any evidence for it, right? It's like the guy who wrote a book about the universe and how it works, and the emperor, like maybe Napoleon II, asked him, where is God? And he said, I didn't need him to explain how everything works, right? So maybe there is consciousness out there. Actually, I, one of the people I've interviewed on my show is a very sort of controversial um, uh, doctor, uh, Dr. Stuart Hameroff. He's the head of the Consciousness Institute in the University of Arizona, and he talks about the quantum effects and the sort of the microtubules in the brain and how perhaps consciousness is a quantum phenomenon and etc etc it's it, it was fascinating stuff and there's been recently new evidence that may may actually support some of his claims that the brain is maybe at some level a quantum machine but it's still very scant and so i'm the kind of person who basically takes the scientific approach and says i'll follow the evidence wherever it takes me if the evidence is contrary to my starting hypothesis, the only reasonable thing to do is to change my opinion, to change my hypothesis. So if you show me the evidence that our consciousness is not here but somewhere else... But the, the evidence is induction, right? Like, if something goes on to infinity and you find yourself early in the series, right, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't stand to reason to question that something goes to infinity? Like, if you were a random number... Who said that something... I don't know, what, what, what is it? You said everything's exponential growth and nothing stops exponential growth. Yeah, but I right? didn't... I never said the part about infinity. Well, exponential curves go to infinity. But I didn't say that. And because I would say every exponential growth ends at some point. Absolutely. It, it, right. It's not going to last forever. However, that point is pretty far off, right? We, we live in a gargantuan universe. So before we get to the computronium and the universe wakes up and we have smart dust and we have smart particles all around, all, all around us, there's a lot of exponentials that could happen right there, right? So it's not going to be infinite, but it's, we are just scratching the surface right now. So my, my question then is why, are we, why, is, why am I at the scratching surface level? Why am I not randomly somewhere in the middle? I, okay. I'm not God. I mean, you can ask God about why are you here now. Uh, I mean, we all give our own answers to that question, right? We all have to find the answer, why are we here? Why was I not born a thousand years ago or a thousand years after? I just, in my opinion, my take is, you know, it's, it's totally random. Like, we're just, you know, as Epicurus said, we're just accidental grouping of the bits. The atoms came together when my mother and my father met at a certain point, and there I am, right? How? We know how. Why? We know why. Why here and why now? Just happened, I guess. And so, we, in my view, we just are given a chance to make the best of it. And unless you believe in God, and then, of course, there will be an a priori reason for you to be where you are, and you would have a purpose that's given by Him to you. I don't take that kind of view myself, right? To me, life is empty and meaningless. And it's empty and meaningless that it's empty, that it's empty and meaningless. And so it's up to us to make our own meaning. Okay, I read an article probably about 10 years online about transhumanism. And at that time, and perhaps uh, maybe still, the theory was that this guy put, put uh, out there was that 
it was going to be necessary because of the plethora of radio frequency waves that are bouncing around. Everything's gone wireless. I'm now reading in the newspapers and et cetera, as probably most people are, that uh, wireless is being taken out of schools because it's thought to uh, impair thinking and learning. Uh, what's your comment on that? Do you think that's one of the drives of trans transhumanism because of the radio waves, radio frequencies? So I don't think that's one of the drives of transhumanism, for sure. The drive of transhumanism is our desire to do better than what we're given with. So in a way, we're all transhumanists. I mean, as I said, the fact that you're wearing clothes right now is a way of you using technology to survive and to live a more comfortable life in the context of the Canadian winter. So I, I don't think that's, you know, any radiation or magnetic field would be the driving force. However, I do think that it is very possible that it will have an effect on all of us. As I said, we're made of atoms. Our brain contains certain amount of water and certain amount of other atoms. And we know every single particle of those can be influenced and often is influenced by things like electromagnetism, things like radiation, and so on, right? And as I said, many of our problems today are are result of our usage of technology. But again, as I said, it's not the, the, the solution is not using less technology or destroying it all. The solution is simply coming up with better technology. So we need better science to figure out those effects that you mentioned, figure out first if they're happening, for sure. Secondly, under what context? And third, start looking about the ways how we can avoid that, how we can have better, perhaps the length of the wave may have an impact, or just the proximity to towers or whatever, right? And this is what science is all about. You build, it's, ne it's never perfect. You don't ever reach perfection, right? Uh, in martial arts, you know, there's that concept about do, the way. It's just, you start and it never ends. Right, so that's what science is all about. It never ends. It just makes every product is just a new iteration. It's hopefully better than the previous generation, but it's never perfect. It's going to have problems of its own. Okay, I'm just going to make a comment. Just hold on, get back to you. To comment, question. Comment is, you know, if I get, uh, if I have an artificial arm and you know I burn it or you know train runs over it, I better hope that they have the part, that hand, in stock, because otherwise I have no hand for a couple You of don't weeks. need a part anymore. You see the guy with the 3D printer here at the door? Yes. That's all you need. You print at home whatever you need. And that's a very crude example, but very soon. Th that thing is about two grand right now. And prices, is, I interviewed recently Brie Petit. Brie Petit is the, the CEO and founder of uh, MakerBot, which is the company that makes those printers, right? That's what his whole thing is all about, democratizing the process of manufacturing, giving you power to be creative, to print your own prosthesis. You don't have to call anybody to beg, to wait, etc. All you need to do is the design, and that's been done already. He, he, there are kids. Kids go over these prostheses every month or a few months. When they're growing, you need a new size every so many months, right? Imagine if you have to buy that all the time, how expensive is this? And then you have to wait to, to be delivered. By the time it's here, you already need the bigger size, right? What's the alternative? For 30 or 40 bucks with a sort of corn-based filament, 
you can make such strong plastic that kids are using it today for hand prosthesis. And there's examples of that. You can go look for them. And he mentioned it during the interview with me. So, and, and that's the future. And, and in the future, those printers that we'll have, they would not be able to print just, you know, objects like that. They'll be able to print your lunch. They'll be able to print you a, a second heart if you want, uh, a new lung, a brand new hand. So you don't actually need an artificial one. Should you choose to have a biological one rather than uh, artificial one, even though once you're at it, you might as well design the new biological hand to be actually better, stronger, and more durable than the one that you're replacing, right? You don't want to replace it all the time. It's a pain in the neck. Okay, so, last question. Um, uh, I've done a lot of studies on chemtrails. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with chemtrails. No. Just look up at the sky. There are these giant plumes. Contrails come out of a jet. Oh, contrails yeah, contrails. I thought, yeah. Barium. Okay. And when they analyzed what's yeah. falling in California, they found nanobots in there, which is kind of like the beginning of trans... Uh, Joni Mitchell, look it up. She came up with this syndrome where she had these wiry, fibrous materials in her skin. So let me correct you a little bit here, okay? Maybe they found nanoparticles. Maybe, okay. But that's very different from nanobots. Okay. Right? That's a huge difference, right? Okay. Right. So I agree on the nanoparticles. We know that there's like tons of them out there, right? And I can give you endless examples. They're in everything almost. But <laughs> that's not to say they're nanobots. It's, it's, it, there's a big difference. Okay. So this stuff's coming out of the sky. It's in some, I don't know. It's in some people's skin. It has like, basically you can't pull them out because they get immersed in your epidermal layer. And they have like technology in their skin falling from the stuffs. I just invite everyone to look it up because yeah, no, I, I agree, it, it's possible. Uh, and but I don't have all the answers for you. Uh, first of all, I don't have all the answers. And secondly, I said many of the problems we're facing with today are technological problems. They are a result of the fact that we're victims of our own success, right? So, uh, anyone else? First off, I, I love the podcast you do. I, I know Gordy and Brad Feld. Well, you, how you kept them on the phone for three hours is amazing. Uh, but real quick, uh, it, it's more tactical question. If out of computer science, uh, you know, we evolve a, a non-biological sentient, how will we know? So what's the measurement to judge that outside of Turing? And why will it bother to engage with us? Say again. So basically, you're asking me to give you the Turing test in a no, new I'm version? A test. I'm a computer scientist. But how, why will it bother to engage? Ah, well, that's that's the issue that Mira is working on, right? So by they say by design or by definition, it doesn't have to, and that's a problem, because if it's ambivalent towards humanity, if it simply ignores us and follows its own ends and its own purposes, then one day we may face the the point where we're made of atoms. The, Artificial intelligence has his own purposes and needs those atoms for something more efficient than, than we ask. Exactly, right. So they're saying, let's make sure that by design, we make sure that they're not ambivalent to us, but they are so-called friendly, right? So they care about us, actually, because if they they don't care, they don't have to hate us. But if they don't care about humanity, we are in trouble. They say, as soon as you go into the they don't care, we're dead. That's their whole spiel. That's the whole idea, I think, that perhaps 
I'm oversimplifying, but that's the whole sort of impetus behind the, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. And they have a number of people working on that. And I've uh, recently, if, if you're a listener of my show, perhaps uh, did you get the episode with Steve Omohundro? Uh, no, he's a guy who talks about uh, sort of uh, mathematical ways of creating what he calls safe AI scaffolding. And it's all very mathematical, and it's basically designing a proper mathematical framework within which we know that AI would not be doing su such and such things. And the proof would be on predictable mathematics. Uh, I recommend check out that episode. The guy is very well known. He was one of the top four or five uh, engineers behind Wolfram Alpha or in Mathematica. Um, he's got a bunch of uh, startup company, well, at least one company and one sort of think tank about AI. And since you are in the same field, you might, you might benefit from looking. And also, next week, uh, I'm uh, publishing my interview with uh, uh, Grady Butch. You know, right. So check that one out. That, uh, that, I, I hope I'm able to post it by next Friday. Yeah, so that, that will be another cool one to watch. Yeah. Thank you, too. Well, guys, thank you for your time. I hope it was worth it. Thank you.